Well, we titled this, this look at the book of Hebrews as greater. That's sort of what the, the, the whole book is about, that word greater. That word is used a lot, greater or better or uh, more. It's used a lot in this book because the whole theme of it is that Jesus is greater than everything that came before him. He is, he is ultimate. He is best. And what we've seen sprinkled in through this book of Hebrews are several warnings. And they're warnings because life is perilous, right? And so for the church and for believers, the author of Hebrews, who we're really not even sure who this person is, but what he does is he, he sprinkles throughout it warnings for the church to say, it's a lethal world out there, and if you're not careful, you will fall and drift away. In life, you will be tempted to turn to many things. His word is simply, Jesus is greater than all of them, right? He is simply greater, this book is written to Jewish Christians. And so the reason that's important is because so often what we've already seen and what we'll even see today is that this person who's writing this is addressing Jewish heritage. And he's understanding to, and bringing them to say, like, all these things about our heritage, our Jewish heritage, is that Jesus is superseding all of those things. Jesus is greater. Again, thinking of the Jewish heritage, he says Jesus is greater than the angels. And he says that he's the object of worship, or he's not an object of, or he is the object of worship, not a worshiper, which angels are worshipers. He then says he's greater than Moses, meaning he is a greater messenger. He brings a greater message. He brings a greater salvation. And he brings also a greater rest. He even says he's greater than Joshua, which we looked at not too long ago. Joshua, back in the book of Joshua, he brought conquest and victory. Don't we know that we have a greater victory in Jesus? Don't we, right? He brings a greater rest, a greater victory. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, but we're going to get to chapter 5, verse 11 through 14 in a moment. But speaking of Joshua, back in chapter 4, verse 10, look at it with me. Chapter 4, verse 10 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We, we have rest, right? Let us therefore, verse 11, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And he's comparing the wilderness generation in Exodus through Joshua, and he's comparing that to us and saying they were pursuing a promised land of rest. And he's saying Jesus brought something far greater than that. He even says something a little bit unusual, which is what he says in verse 10. We have entered God's rest, and yet right after that in verse 11, he says, so strive for it. That makes no sense, right? To say that you've already received something, and yet it's something you should be striving for. That's an interesting component there that leads us naturally into what we're going to look at today, is that we've received rest, but we're also pursuing rest. We're resting while striving to enter rest. I titled my message this morning, Full but still hungry. And you're thinking, that sounds kind of like me over the holidays, right? Full, and yet somehow I find room for that dessert. I find room for leftover turkey when I'm completely full of turkey. It just finds its way in there. No, that sermon title is not me endorsing gluttony. What I'm saying is there is a sense in which we are, as we as recipients of salvation have been, listen to this, we have been made full, right? Right? We've been made full. Thank God we've been made full by him. And yet, we are called to hunger for spiritual food. That's strange, right? We have it, and yet we're called to hunger for it. Rest while striving to enter that rest. We rest because that's the center of the gospel message. I mean, after Jesus fed the 5,000, back in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, it says, Jesus then said to them, again, he just fed a bunch of Jewish people food. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, manna, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. What's he talking about? The bread of life. 
what he says next, right? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. What they're saying is, you got some special kind of bread? Give it to us constantly. Please give it to us always. And he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, listen, full, right? Shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm going to say this again. The core of the gospel message that I pray that you have clung to is this. You're full. You have been made full. You can rest in that. Praise God for that. And yet, as your physical existence requires daily nourishment, so does your spiritual existence. You have rest, and yet we are striving for that, are we not? We're striving for that. We've been made full, and yet we're striving for nourishment each and every day. And the author of Hebrews comes on the scene saying, what you're spiritually hungry for, and really whether or not you are spiritually hungry, has something to say about your preparedness for the world that you step into each and every day. As we've been seeing before already in Hebrews, at the heart, this passage is a warning. So I want to examine it as such because we've got to see it in its context. And in the context, this is a warning passage to believers that are maybe struggling with the things in the world. I think that we can identify with that, right? So let's look at it. Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14. It says this. <clears throat> Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 says, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch. <laughs> For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have, their, who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Again, this is important to, I'm going to repeat this one more time, is that this is a letter written, a sermon letter written to Jewish Christians. And so because of that, there's a lot that we can understand that maybe is not first intended for us. In fact, in verse 11, the very first thing he says, about this we have much to say. Well, what's this, Right? Again, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews. I don't expect you to remember that. In fact, tomorrow you probably won't remember this, right? So I want to just recap. What is this that he's talking about? About this, we have much to say. Well, he's talking about what happened right before this. And what he's saying is, we just had this conversation about this guy named Melchizedek. Now, we'll talk about him at length in chapter 7. But who that is? This guy was a priest king back in the book of Genesis. And the author's point is, that priest king, Melchizedek, points us to Jesus. And again, we'll get more into that in chapter 7. I don't want to bog down there. But simply put, this is the point that is important today, that Jesus is greater than the priesthood that the Jews have always known. The sons of Aaron, all the Levites that they're used to, they're accustomed to, they have this whole system. This guy is saying he is greater than that system. So not just of angels and Moses and Joshua. He's greater than the priesthood, which may not be a big deal to your mind because you're not a Jewish person. But to their mind, the priesthood was a huge deal. Look back at chapter 4, verses 14. We're going to read another verse in just a second. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since then, okay, speaking of the priesthood of Jesus, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, the, first, the last verse before what we're looking at today, says that Jesus is being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's supposed to stand out. Because he's saying, 
He's not after the order of Aaron or after the order of the Levites. He's of a different order. And what order is that? He's a priest king. He has passed through, it says, the heavens. A priest would normally pass through a veil or pass through a door. What it's saying is Jesus goes not to a figurative throne room to offer up sacrifices. He has passed through the actual throne room. That's pretty amazing, is it not? He's greater. That's the whole point is that Jesus is greater. It's a wonderful and in-depth subject, but the author now takes a moment, and this is so neat because the thing is, what you're, you're looking at me right now and thinking, yeah, that one kind of, that went over my head. I'm not really sure what you just said. It's funny you may say that, and it's like, I didn't say that. What are you talking, you're talking to yourself right now. Yeah, I get that, okay? It's, there's a lot of conversations happening up here most of the time. This is a wonderful and an in-depth subject, but the author, and this is really neat, the author now takes a moment to pause from that conversation, and he will resume it in chapter 6, verse 13. Look down. You see how far that is, right? From, from where we are in verse 11 all the way to verse 13 of chapter 6, he pauses and steps away from that conversation, and you can look and see that it resumes. And in chapter 7, that conversation will resume. So why the pause? Why the deviation? Here it is. To tell them that it's going over their head, listen, because they need to grow up. We need to hear that one. It's going over their head because they need to grow up. I'm paraphrasing, but in fact, I almost titled the sermon, Grow Up. But I wanted you to actually be here today, and it's on Facebook. So that's why I didn't. But that's really the theme of the message. Is it, guys, it's time to grow up. This is the message from the author, and so it has to be the message to us today. Seemingly, there have been many people here that have made professions of faith in this audience, and they've stopped giving any signs of growth, no hunger. And so for the author, this isn't an optional matter of little importance. He is deeply concerned with their hunger. You know why? Because of what we've already seen, the warning of the drift. If you're not hungry, you're drifting. And that's the warning And so I want to leave you guys with three things this morning, and we'll take the Lord's Supper after we're done with our message. But guys, I'm really excited to preach this, but I'm honestly kind of scared to, because I want you to receive my heart tenderly, gently, and graciously. But I'm going to say the same thing that the author of Hebrews said, is that it's time for us to grow up, me intended, me in particular. It's time for each of us to grow up. So I want you to see three things as we kind of have a hungry approach to our discipleship. And that's number one, that we should have a diligent and not sluggish heart. If you're taking notes, it's on the screen behind me. We should have a diligent, not sluggish heart. Diligent, not sluggish. Devoted, earnest, like dialed in, not lazy and apathetic is what I mean by that. The second part of verse 11 says, about, about this we have much to say. So he says, he pauses, and he says, it's hard to explain. And you're like, yeah, no kidding, Melchizedek. I can barely pronounce the name. But he says, it's hard to explain. But here's the reason he gives. Since you have become dull of hearing. Now, I want you to hear something. What he's saying is it's hard to explain to these people, not because the priesthood of Jesus is too hard to understand. You hear that, right? He's saying it's, the reason why is because you have become dull of hearing. It's not because the, the subject matter is hard to understand. The, the priesthood of Jesus, and I realize the, the terminology may be confusing, but the priesthood of Jesus is very simple. In fact, I'd say it's simple enough for a child to understand. In fact, I would say it's so simple that a child must understand in order to be, make a profession of faith. He's like, well, I've never heard my child even use the word priest. You don't have to, to understand the priesthood of Jesus. We and God are separated because of our sin. I'm breaking it down. It's very simple. We and a holy God, sinful man, holy God, can't be together, right? 
That's, that's why Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden. They couldn't be together because God is holy. Man is not. If man is with God, then God is unholy. Can't happen, right? So we have a problem. A priest is simply a mediator. It's a go-between. And so what the priesthood of Jesus means is that we are separated from God. We need someone to come between holy God, sinful man. Jesus comes between them, builds a cross between them, and bridges the great divide that humanity's greatest problem is that we are lost apart from a God, a holy God, in the depths of our sin. Jesus saves. That's the priesthood of Jesus. That Jesus was sent from God. He was sent for man. And so he is perfectly God, perfectly man, comes between and offers a perfect sacrifice, which is what priests did. Do you see how simple that is? That's the gospel message. You can't follow Jesus without understanding that Jesus is the one who bridges the gap that you can't bridge, right? You have to understand that. That is the gospel at its core. And so, again, it's not hard to explain because it's hard information. It's hard to explain to these people, not because the priesthood of Jesus is hard to understand. It's difficult to explain, he says, since or because the people have become dull of hearing. In other words, they become too lazy. They simply become too lazy to understand. The word translated for dull can also be translated, and maybe it is in your translation, translated sluggish or slothful. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 12, it's translated that way. And by the way, I, I said that it resumes in chapter 6, verse 13. Chapter 6, verse 12 is the end of this pause. And that's why you'll see it in verse 12, the word sluggish or dull is there. It's a way to bookend these. He provides the same verb at the beginning as he provides at the end to say that's the end of the pause, right? Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, 11 and 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. That's diligence. It may even say in your translation, earnestness. That's the opposite of sluggishness. Have earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be, here's the contrast, sluggish. Not lazy, but diligent. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Not sluggish, but earnest, diligent. The point is not that there are no hard things to understand in the Bible. There are plenty of hard things to understand in the Bible, and I'll be the first one to admit that. Things in here are hard to understand. But the, the simple principle, the point is this. Ignorance of God's Word, hear this, ignorance of God's Word is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. Let that one just fall for a second. Ignorance of the Word of God, willful ignorance, that's what it is, is an is a moral problem, not an intellectual one. You are smart enough to understand God's word. He wouldn't have given it if you weren't. You are smart enough. Are you willing? Are you diligent enough? The readers won't understand because they don't want to understand. Now, I'm not about to suggest that I am a great Bible teacher. I think that I lack humor. I think that I lack good illustrations. I lack dynamic presentation. There are so many more dynamic and exciting better dressed pastors and preachers of God's word than me, okay? So I'm not about to suggest that I got this, this whole thing mastered, okay? However, I do think that God has graciously, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm simply trying to make a point here. I believe that God has gifted me with being able to make the meaning of Scripture clear and relevant to your life. I'm not saying I'm the best preacher in the world. I'm far from it. But I think that we can, by God's grace, again, by the power of the Spirit, approach any passage in this Bible, and I'm confident that God has gifted me with the ability to make it at least clear and understandable, if not engaging and exciting. That's tough, right? But I can make this clear and understandable and relevant to your life. Here's why I say that. It's not that it's hard to understand. It's that maybe you're not willing. 
If you come here week in and week out and hear me preach from God's word and never get anything out of it, it isn't because you intellectually lack. It's not because you can't understand. It's because you don't want to. You hear that, right? That's just, I'm not saying that for, I'm saying that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that the problem isn't here. The problem is here. It's not a lack of intelligence, even for you. It's a lack of diligence. It's a lack of diligence. Do you have the Bible open in front of you? Are you leaning on the screen? Do you have your text in front of you? You wouldn't send your child to school without their backpack, and yet we come without a Bible. Are you jotting notes? Little word, not even a lot, just little things to help you focus. It's it's scientifically proven that jotting notes helps you pay attention. Are you thinking, as I'm saying these words, are you thinking, that's for me? Or are you thinking, yeah, man, Joe over there needs to hear that one. Yeah, Ashley over there needs to hear that one. Yeah, Sam over there needs to hear that one. What are you thinking? Is it for you or is it for somebody else? Are you pointing the finger? Are you pondering it during our time of response? Are you revisiting it Sunday afternoon or during the week? My point is, indifference precedes laziness. Apathy precedes sluggishness. Willful ignorance is my point. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting on them about. And this is true at home too. If you struggle to be in the word, please hear this. The problem is not your brain. The problem is your heart. The problem is not your brain. The problem is your heart. And I'm not saying there's not a a, a great treasure of having a study Bible or or online resources or whatever it may be. There's, There's treasures in that. My point is, you are able to pick up the word of God and soak in the goodness of who our God is. Are you willing? It's not a brain problem. It's a heart problem. And this is one of the things that I mentioned last week. And that is that motivation is so unpredictable. Like, you think, well, I'm not motivated. It's hard to motivate myself. Yeah, no kidding. You think that everybody who ever reads their Bible wakes up just like, I can't wait to get in this thing. Of course not. Motivation is fickle. Motivation is unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. Discipline, though, self-control is controllable. And it can be predicted. You know why? Discipline is a choice. Motivation is wildly unpredictable. You're in control of your discipline, church. I'm not trying to sound harsh. I'm, I'm simply saying that this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Is he's telling them, be willing, be diligent, not sluggish. And the same is true of, our, of ourselves as is true here. The readers won't understand because they don't want to understand. Ignorance of God's word is a moral problem, not an intellectual one. So the first thing I want to see there is, is what we just talked about. The second thing is this. The, hunger, the hungry approach is a readiness and willingness to teach. A readiness and willingness to teach. Now, I'm going to go ahead and get out in front of this one before you jump to teach. Are you kidding me? Not my gifting, right? And it's not. It's not several of your gifting, and that's okay. Let's just seek to understand the author on this matter because I think that there's more here than you may realize. Verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Not only had, their, had they lazily neglected some of the more mature principles of following Christ, it's not just that. They had forgotten the fundamental things. They had forgotten the simple things. He says, you got to be taught them 
again. Not sure how long they'd been believers, long enough for the author to think that they should be the ones doing the teaching to others by now. And again, this is what I said a minute ago. Teaching, you guys should be teaching. Pastor, you don't know me very well. That is simply not my gift. There's no way, not going to happen. The word for teacher here is not a Sunday school teacher. It's not a pastor. It's not a small group leader. Notice he doesn't say some of you ought to be teachers. He says all of them. Some, all you guys by now ought to be teaching people. The thing is, he's not talking about a position. He's not talking about an office, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor. The author is saying, you must be a disciple maker. By now, you should be making disciples, not so milk-fed that you can't do anything. You should be growing, is what he's saying. Parents, whether you like it or not, you're a teacher. You must be. It just depends on whether or not you're going to be doing the right teaching. Right? You are a teacher. Friends, if you are a friend of anybody, in some way or another, you will be a teacher. What will come out? God calls us all to be teachers in some way or another, disciple makers. That's the point. The author is pointing out their responsibility to disciple their own. In other words, how will your neighbor, how will your kids, how will your coworker, how are they going to understand if you don't understand? That's what he's saying. That you're on milk. How do you expect other people, how do you expect your church to grow? How do you expect your family to come to faith in Jesus if you can't even explain how to do that? See what I'm saying? You should be teachers. In fact, the word again in verse 12, so for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you Again, what that means is they had forgotten what they had originally heard. They had forgotten even the milk. Guys, every believer should be able to articulate the basic elements of God's word to other people. I'm not talking about the heavy things. I'm talking about the simplicity of the Bible story. We should all be able to articulate that to other people. And this is what that looks like. When I do baptismal counseling, I love doing that, first of all, and, and it, you really get a range. I mean, everybody's in a different place, not only intellectually, but in their heart. And so sometimes it could be a six-year-old child, and sometimes it will be an 80-year-old uh, adult, and everybody is, is different. And so in my baptismal counseling, I, I see a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds with a lot of different understandings. And what usually comes to happen, they come and say, I want to be baptized. And I always start, I don't go straight to baptism. First of all, I got to know their heart. Are they a believer? And so I want to hear them tell me what hope they have in, in salvation. Like, what, what is your, why do you want to be, a, be baptized? And so they say, because I'm, I'm a Christian or I want to be a Christian. And I say, okay, why did, why did Jesus come to the earth? And they almost always say the same thing. And praise God they say this, by the way, to save us from our sins. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? to save us from our sins. But that is such an often used phrase to educate, and it's so memorized that I think we just assume that we know what that means without actually unpacking it. And so what I always do is say, why? Why does sin matter? What's the big deal with, why do you need salvation? Save us from our sins. Well, why is sin such a big deal is usually the way that I phrase that. And so I say, well, sin is... Um, if, if, you're, if you're a sinner, you, you go, if it's a child, they say, you know, they go, you go, because they don't want to say the word. And I'm like, it, it's okay, we can say it. And well, we talk about that, and I say, okay, let's, let's talk about the consequences of sin. And so my point is that when I have that conversation, I work backwards from a statement that we may rehearse and say, we can't just say that phrase. We have to understand the need. And guys, I would argue that every person in this room that has made a profession of faith that is truly belonging to Jesus must be able to articulate the simplicity of the fact that apart from a holy God intervening and saving and sending a ransom from heaven, we have no hope. Guys, you got to be able to say that to somebody else. 
If I were to come to you and say, why do you know that you're a Christian? What would you say? What would you say to that? You have to have an answer. The milk, I mean, that's, that's milk, that's simple stuff. That's the again is what he's saying. You've got to be able to say and understand why God is Lord and Savior, why Christ is Lord and Savior and coming King. What's the reason for the hope? What does it mean to turn from sin and strive to obedience? That's the milk. That's the foundational. And listen, it's not that these things aren't wonderful. They are foundational because they are wonderful, right? They are milk and foundational because they are so wonderful. We praise God for the foundation of the elementary while also recognizing that much is to be gained by looking beyond the foundational. Much is to be gained by growing up and seeing that there is big and, and other great things to look at. I've always eaten steak and, and red meat. I like steak. But when I was a kid, and even a young adult, I ate medium well steak. Okay? Yeah. Stop, Amanda. I'll get there. I ate medium well steak. And you know what? It, it, it tasted good. Medium well steak tastes good, right? And so uh, some of you like, no, wrong. It tastes good. It does. It's still meat, and it still tastes good. And even adding a little bit of A1 sauce, it tastes good. You may even dip yours in ketchup. I still think that tastes good. But there is something that tastes far better, is it not? When I came to fellowship uh, two and a half years ago, I was thrown into a group on Facebook um, against my will. And it's something called like the Fellowship Grillers or something like that. It was during COVID, and I think that they had such trauma from not being able to grill with one another that they just created this virtual world where we can all grill, you know, electronically. Or anyway, they're a bunch of weirdos, and they created a Facebook group, and I got thrown into it. But I learned uh, that I, I, was, I should have been ashamed of myself for even thinking of grilling it beyond a medium steak. And someone would say, you want it to still be mooing on the plate, Right? The point is, and I've learned, and by the way, I've been sanctified since then, and I do have a medium steak, and sometimes even a medium rare steak, and I enjoy it. The point is, I still think that a medium well steak tastes good, but there is something greater. And as I've grown and matured, I've to appreciate what is even greater. I don't want to go back to my immaturity because I've grown to appreciate additional savory things. Guys, we praise God for the sweet beauty of the foundational, of the elementary, but the more you grow, the more you mature, the more that you hunger, the more savory you will find the one that you hunger for. You got to grow up though. You got to grow up. Now the fact is that some of you guys, some of you need the milk still. Some of you are young in the faith, and it's like, man, I I don't know if this message is for me. I just, I'm, I just was baptized a month ago, or I've only been a believer. Listen, Caleb, I'm seven years old. I don't even know why I'm in this room. I should be in children's church. What are you talking about? But some of you guys are still in the milk, and that's okay. Some of you guys still need to be understanding the precious elements of that Jesus died to save you, and you should make him Lord and Savior. That's the milk. It is foundational, and it is wonderful. But others of you should be teachers by now. Others of you should be disciple makers by now. And I, that means everybody in this room, we should be making disciples. We should be disciple makers by now. We should be able to understand and articulate what is the gospel. I'll give you four quick ways, four quick words rather, to understand a quick little formula of what the gospel is. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God created all things and it was perfect. It was holy. It was without sin. God. The second is man. Man was created, and man shortly thereafter fractured those things. When man sinned, it caused a separation, a gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. Man. 
The third is Christ. You see, God saw man in our sinful state, our hopeless state, and he sent a rescue for sinners. He sent a ransom from heaven that we would not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That's the gospel. God, man, Christ, and the response to that is that we would by faith trust in him. Trust in him as Christ, as Lord and Savior, and surrender our lives to him every day. What is the gospel? God, man, Christ response. That's simple. And you can be a teacher with that, can you not? You can be a teacher with that. But the author is still writing a warning that the world is full of evil and hardship and temptation, and only those who have grown beyond infancy will be able to see good and evil and hold fast the confession of our hope, as he's already said. And the third thing of a hungry approach is this, a maturing spiritual appetite. A maturing spiritual appetite. Emphasis on the word maturing, constantly growing, constantly hungry. What the author has said is that you need milk, not solid food, because look at verse 13. It says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. They don't know the word since he is a child. You're on milk because you don't know the word. You're unskilled in the word, and you have to walk before you can run. You need to be running, but first you need to walk. You don't build a spiral staircase and banister before you build a foundation. The intent is that the gospel, the foundational things are wonderful. They are foundational for a reason. But God intends for our diet to grow, to mature as we grow, as we mature. Look at verse 14. He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. We'll, we'll come back and talk about that word, of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author is emphasizing that absorbing the word is not just for the sake of having a full head. Absorbing the word is not for the sake of just having a full head, but of having a transformed heart. Pull that graphic up there that we looked at last week. Uh, we talked about this, right? From Romans chapter 12, that if we're renewing our mind, if, if we're pouring into our mind the word of God, Lord willing, over time, he will use what we're renewing our mind with, his word, to change our hearts, to transform who we are from the inside out. Notice I say from the inside out, because what then happens is that as we are changed on the inside, it produces a changed life. Change inside produces a changed life. Part of changed living is what the author mentions then in verse 14 here. In verse 14, he says, Solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. I'll be, to be honest, it sounds a lot like Romans 12, 2 that we looked at last week that says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, it's the same thing that he has in mind here in Hebrews 5, by testing, knowing what's good, knowing what's evil, by testing you may discern, same word, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, powers of discernment, back in verse 14 of chapter 5. Powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish the testing good from evil. Discernment. And you may be thinking, you keep using that word. I'm not really sure that I understand what that word means. Discernment. Some of you guys are so familiar with the taste of Dr. Pepper that you get personally offended if a host tries to slip Dr. Thunder past your taste buds. Same argument for Coca-Cola versus RC Cola. Blasphemy, right? You get personally offended. Like, how dare you? I know the difference, right? You know what is good. 
And because of that, you discern what is an evil imposter. Dr. Thunder is an evil imposter, is it not? I had a professor in seminary, his name is Tom Schreiner. On discernment, he said that this is what discernment is. Discernment is a grid that helps us analyze and produce instant moral and theological judgments. I'm going to read that again. It's a grid that helps us analyze and produce instant moral and theological judgments. Meaning that it's something that's already in place, so that when faced with a trial or a circumstance or a difficulty, we make an instant moral and theological judgment because of what is already there. That is discernment. Put it this way, use another analogy. You want a heart surgeon. If you have to have heart surgery, you want a heart surgeon that doesn't have to consult his textbooks from med school and rethink cardiology mid-surgery, right? You want someone that is so immersed and has so much practice that when something happens, unforeseen even, they, they know exactly what to do. An instant judgment call, right? Why? Because they know the content. They know what happens next. That's discernment. You want a surgeon with instant intuition, judgment over years of dedicated practice. You don't want a guy in the surgery room saying, that part's not supposed to be bleeding. Better find the, let me, index. Um, that's not what you want, right? You want someone that is so practiced that when faced with a trial, they know exactly what they're supposed to do. That is discernment. That is taking what has been practiced and rehearsed and put in and then on the fly, it's almost involuntary, they know exactly the way to see it, judge it, and respond to it. If you want to be a mature believer with instant theological and moral judgments, you must train your discernment by constant practice. You must be hungry for solid food. Because like the surgeon, we are daily discerning life and death, good and evil is what it says in verse 14. Here's what that means. Men, you will face sexual temptation. You know that that's coming. You know it. Whether or not you respond in obedience and flee that temptation is based on whether or not you have constant practice under your belt and are ready to discern the circumstance. Because you don't know when it's coming. You don't know when the inclination will hit. But your discernment will tell you what your instant moral judgment is, right? Ladies, that means that in the instant when you have the urge to need some sort of extra biblical validation, say, I need this box checked, I need to feel this way, I need whatever it may be. Are you going to make an instant moral judgment, a call based on discerning the fact that I have constantly practiced and renewed my mind, God has transformed my heart, Will I walk in obedience? Because you don't have time on the fly to consider the minefield of what the world says about you versus what God says about you. It is a minefield. Will you be prepared for that minefield? Will you discern in that moment? Guys, your value isn't whether you have <clears throat> a significant other. It's not whether you were raised by, that you raised godly kids. It's not whether or not you struggle with the big sins. Your value is determined by the God who loved you and gave himself for you. And when something in your mind and in your heart says, I'm worthless, do you have enough constant practice in the meat of the word to know that that's just garbage? That's just garbage. Because you know better than that. And the only way you can know better than that is to know. That's discernment. And in the onslaught of cultural manipulation and indoctrination, 
it's not just coming for your kids, it's coming for you. Under the suffocating weight of temptation, of the lust to yearn after the things of the world, you don't have time. Listen, you don't have time on the fly to consult the textbook. You don't have time on the fly to make a decision and say, okay, look, what does it say here? Should I do that or should I not? You don't have time to make a judgment call based on, well, let's go to the book. Will you know what is good? Will you discern? And will you obey? Listen, preparation for temptation doesn't happen out on your feet. It happens at home on your knees. Because you step into that minefield and your preparation doesn't happen out there. It happens in the intimate moments before you even leave the house. It happens in here. Before you go and be the church, are you allowing God to prepare your heart here? One thing that I think is interesting is that maturing your biblical appetite is not a suggestion so you'll know more information. That's not what he's saying. He's like, you guys should know more. That's not what he's saying. Not that you should, you should just know more things. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. The author doesn't believe, this is so important, the author doesn't believe that there is a permanent state of spiritual infancy that believers can occupy. He doesn't believe that there is a permanent state of spiritual infancy that believers can occupy. The entire purpose of this book is a warning about the danger of falling away. What worries the author isn't that these Christians aren't smart. It's that their laziness will lead to their drift into leaving the church and ultimately leaving God. Big deal. The urgency from the author of Hebrews and from your pastor today is to grow up. It's time to grow up, man. It's time to leave spiritual infancy behind and grow up. And some of you are more milk-fed than others. Some of you may be at least on baby food. But it's time to constantly be hungering and growing and growing up, man, maturing. I remember after my first year in college, I did horrible. I made so many bad choices, and I won't get into all that right now, <clears throat> although I'm not ashamed to do that. I made bad choices, and I remember I went home and I had to face the music and tell my dad, who's an understanding man, but even in that one, he was pushed. He's very angry, and he and I decided to go out to lunch. Went to a local Chinese restaurant, which we both enjoyed. And so we sit down and just kind of had a come to Jesus moment, as we would say. And just dad and son, father and son, he, he very lovingly, but, but sincerely and directly, you know what he just told me? He told me it's time to grow up. He told me it's time to grow up. And look, that still, and that, that jarred me, man. I was, according to this, culture. I was an adult, and it still happened in phases, but I needed someone who loved me to tell me the truth, and the truth was this, that I was a grown child. I was a certain age, but I was a big baby. I was a big child. Guys, I had a hard time preparing for this message. I had a hard time preparing for this message because I want to avoid something. Sometimes I want to avoid the hard things. It's not always easy to talk about the hard things in Scripture. This is a hard one because it hits us right here between the eyes. I had a hard time preparing this because I don't want to avoid what's hard, but at the same time, I also don't want to be harsh, but gentle and tender and gracious. But some of you guys have been believers for years and years and are still nursing babies. You're grown children. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm trying to be a, a pastor. That some of you guys, it's time to grow up. I don't care if you're a 50-year-old Christian. Some of you are babies. 
And it's time to grow up. And if that hits you right between the eyes, I, I'm not going to apologize for that. The author of Hebrews is talking to people just like you. That it's time to grow up, men especially. You're the leaders of the church. Your family's answer to you at the end of the day. Are you a disciple maker or a lazy bum that just drags himself to church because his wife wants him to? I'm not trying to be a jerk. But the truth of the matter is if you're not growing up, if you're not getting off the milk, according to this guy, you're going to drift away. This is serious stuff, right? It's life and death. The author doesn't say it to be, be mean and make them feel bad. He lovingly says it to wake them up. The most loving thing that I can do is tell you to stop being a baby. Your soul, your family's souls are too important for you to cling to the bottle. The message is simple. Draw near to God or you will drift away from him. And I don't have fun saying those things. I want you to love me. Be my buddy. But I needed my dad to tell me, even though it was hard, it's time to grow up, to stop being a big kid and start eating solid food. And you may be thinking, good grief, I picked the wrong day to come to church. Especially if you're a guest of ours. Maybe thinking, man, where's the grace? First of all, if you're asking yourself that question, you missed the earlier part of the sermon. You missed the whole gospel part. But let me, let me wrap it up with this way. Where's the grace? The grace is that none of us deserve to even eat, much less have a seat at the table. The grace is that we receive a warning. The grace is that we have already received rest. The grace is that you have been made full, praise God. The grace is that while we are still hungering, we are satisfied, amen? That's the grace. The grace is that you have no business at the table with the Son, and yet you are not just a guest, you are a child of God. That's the grace. Now, let's go eat.